Shelly Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Shelly. September 6, 2021, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. And uh, this is the show you were looking for. <laughs> um, and hopefully it's, you know... Well, I know I know it is because you found it. You're hearing me. So anyway, it is Monday, Moon Day, the first broadcast day of the week at Ocelli.com. And got to tell you, uh, things, are, things are weird all day. Weird all day with communications and attempting to get people and all that good stuff. Joseph L. Flatley will be joining me in the first hour. And, um, well, I'll get to that when I get to that. But anyhow, uh, probably going to have to take a quick little break. And come on back in during something or other while I go get him. Uh, but you guys, man, let me tell you, it's been a strange couple of weeks. Um, so I, I'm not going to talk about the rolling three-week-long migraine headache. Nobody cares. Uh, <laughs> it is what it is. And I'm sure you got your own problems. So there's that. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of things that have been going on in the news. Of course, a string of interesting shootings over the weekend. Uh, one guy hearing words from God decided to wipe out a family that he had no connection to, allegedly. Uh, other people doing wild stuff with guns here and there because, well, bottom line is people are unhinged. And they're getting more and more unhinged as time goes on. Wonder how well that's going to affect them as the uh, <clears throat> unemployment insurance runs out and everything. You know, all that wonderful stuff that's going on out there in the uh, reality that is as it stands, I guess. <laughs> Anyhow, um, tell you what, guys, I am going to go to an unscheduled break right here and uh, probably not talk about the news during this hour or so, and we'll just go to where we're going. So this is Big Guy by 10Gage, and it should fill a couple of minutes. Ocelli.com, the Ocelli effect is rolling. Stick around. start at the beginning of the show there i started talking news and told you i wasn't sure what was going on with my first hour guest well <laughs> i found out real quick uh by sending a message over turns out uh you know he might have had some stuff going on and uh forgot <laughs> so we'll leave it at that uh but you know here he is joseph l flatley and guess what i'm not going to talk about his new book um but anyway, <laughs> well, we can mention it, you know. Um, yes. So, so I have a book out now. It's called the uh, the so-called Pro no. That's the name of my podcast. No, I it's, really, it's, it's just, okay. Just it's, got out of the car and ran upstairs. Dude, relax. Yeah. Don't even worry about it. You know what? Forget about a six the book. Pack of uh, Iron City on my way up the steps. Did you? Now I'm have raring you, to go. Have you cracked one open and started drinking it? Yes. No. <laughs> There it is. All there right. Is. Thank um, you. Okay. You know what? You relax a second because cause I'm just going to, since you're all discombobulated and so am I, what the hell? I'm going to make it worse. Ready? Um, you know, we're not going to talk about the book tonight anyway. We'll talk about it in a future show. So, uh, and 
there's that. There's that. That's the end of that. That we got that going for us. And now, and now, uh, one other thing, you know. You've written some stuff and done some podcasts uh, recently, which, by the way, I could describe Joseph L. Flatley as a podcaster, an author, uh, you know, content creator, a journalist, et cetera, et cetera. I could do all that, but why don't you just go over to LennyFlatley.net, right? I, I think I got mm-hmm. the website right. LennyFlatley.net, and check it out for yourself. Um, and when you do, you can go over there and see if he bore a snowball's chance in hell of uh, <laughs> a, a, a beginning to wrap his mind around the octopus. Now, why do I say that, and why does it sound like I'm picking on Joe? I, I'm not. Um, <laughs> frankly? Uh, anybody who says they know what was going on with that story is lying or they're fooling themselves. I mean, I think we're in agreement on that. Well, they might be taking really good drugs, because i got to be honest with you. <laughs> even on good drugs... I don't have the ability to necessarily... Like, here here we go. Most unfair question of the entire year. I'm going to throw it at Joseph L. Flatley. Ready? In two minutes or less, explain this to me. You can't. J- don't even try. <laughs> okay? Because it don't work. Okay? This, well, this is a complex what thing. What interests me about the story is right. that it's, you know, in all of these stories that I do that might seem impossibly immense or impossibly nutty, I just try to, like get through like the shortest possible direct you know shortest possible path to get from point a to point b um without getting caught up in all the tributaries and really just try to understand not so much can i get to the bottom of this story of course not but can i get some meaning out of it or you know learn something from telling the story yes and that's really all i right hope to do well and here's another thing you as a podcaster know my problem here when somebody says to me why don't you do a show on Mm. castellero and the octopus and i go okay can't talk to him he's dead all right next thing who can i uh you know what documentation can i get all right so that's its own problem with everything but then you go, okay, so maybe I can talk to some people who worked with him, worked on it, new stuff. And you try to do that. And I, I defy, dare anybody to really get a coherent story out of two or three mm-hmm. people. I have sat down, and you know this because we did the bad ideas department, which, by the way, go back in my archives. Look, the bad ideas department thing, which was inspired by this uh this project that joe had and then we took audio recordings of interesting interviews played them and talked about them afterwards okay the thing is (laughs) you have to have a plan when you're going to do something like that a little bit a little bit it doesn't have to be a script it doesn't but, but you have to have an end goal you have okay so you make a lot of calls you talk to people you you try and you know at least this is what i do unlike some other people who are completely clueless and just do the interview so tell me what your book's about um and that's what they do even if i haven't read the book i usually know the material you know but but anyway point is that you, you you make some calls right so maybe you get in touch with some people who knew danny who knew some of the players who knew some of the other information who were developing independently similar stuff and yeah yeah try and make a coherent anything out of it good luck 
because <laughs> you start talking to people, first of all, a couple of them are a little unhinged because I think trying to wrap your mind around certain things and people make claims as per usual that they were part of something that they weren't. And I don't know. So you sift through all that. And then you get a couple of people that do know something. Maybe, you know, some of them are nervous about going public and they got some information, but they're willing to share it with you. But please, off the record. Okay. You do all of that. And still looking at your notes, looking at the stuff that you collect. Now, you're you're actually a journalist. See, I'm, I, I don't call myself a journalist. But I do utilize some of those uh, middle school and high school journalist, you know, Sure. ideas to try and put these things together when I'm going to cover a story like this. And I can't, I, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how good luck, because there's no singular answer to any of that. And the ideas are so different among very passionate, very well-meaning people. Some others that I don't know what they mean. Cause they're weird. Okay. <laughs> and, and I mean, they're weird, not in the sense of, Oh, they're just a bit outside of the ordinary. I mean, they're very strange about the amount of information they share. You have one conversation one day. They tell you a story a certain way. They only know so much. Then they think about it a while. They come back to you and they either start retracting things or putting new things in. And this is the only area of study that is loaded with all this kind of stuff. So I don't do that many shows on it. I've tried. Mm-hmm. I really have, but I, I've probably done 30 hours worth of work that never came to air to try and put the story together. So um, I know that you're, again, somebody who likes to tackle the unusual. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, do, do you, first of all, tell people I'm not in, insane when I'm describing this because th- no. this is what I'm telling so- you I went through. No, you're not insane. I mean, you may be, but what you just said was... Well, at was least not on this count, reasonable. okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, no, you know, so briefly, because some people are not going to know what the hell we're talking about. I mean, basically, the octopus is the name given by a journalist named Danny Castellaro for what he termed to be a large conspiracy involving government private intelligence, organized crime, and um, and he died while um, while investigating it. Some say he was murdered. Uh, the coroner's report said that he was, that it was suicide, but you know, it's not at all 100% clear what happened. Um, and from there, you know, people, especially in our line of work, the kind of parapolitical or conspiracy realm, mm-hmm. People see something that is an open-ended mystery, and the first thing they do is try to use that to explain (laughs) all their pet theories. So it becomes this, like, ever-evolving miasma of, like, every conspiracy theory from very reasonable parapolitical concerns Mm -hmm. to, like, you know, dealing with, like, the assassination of JFK, for instance, to, like completely bizarro ufo stuff you know and um so that's what one thing that kind of makes this story kind of impossible i was i was laughing i i actually been going back and forth in email with uh judith very baker oh my um she uh you know she's like i don't know why i ended up talking to her but 
she was like, oh, Michael Reconosciuto, you know, important part of the octopus. He's my he's my brother-in-law. I'm like, of course he is. Of course. He I is. mean, you can't get away from anybody in this story. It's just nonstop. So, <laughs> you know, if 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 the octopus were not named as such, I could start to call Judy the octopus because mm. every time, well, you know, uh, when it comes to AIDS, well, yeah, I know about that. Or when it comes to, uh, you know, COVID, oh, I know about that. When it comes to cancer, I know about that. When it comes to JFK, RFK, oh, yeah, I know about all the... Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yeah, and I dated the anti-Castro-Cuban guy who... Uh-huh. Um, okay, enough of that. <laughs> okay, let's just... I'll leave it there. I don't know what you're doing going back and forth with her. That's that's on you, but... I, yeah, I, I I'm just, just trying to talk to her because it's like, you know, you can't tell me that um, your, your, your sibling is married to the one guy who won't talk to me without me bothering you to try to get an interview, you know? Yeah, well, there, there's another problem, too, right? So, look, but but here's the thing about this, this concept that Danny had. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, it seems so, it's so vast mm-hmm. that it's one of those things that is obviously going to fall apart on its face because it's overly complex. I right. get that. Okay, and this involves software, too. I don't know if you mentioned that. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. You know, yeah. this involves... And organized crime is a key thing here. But also, you know, organized crime and the intelligence agencies, you go, yeah, of course. Drug dealing and all that. Oh, well, okay, Gary Webb, same kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, look, there's lots of components here that start to make sense. And I say that there are many people who do not even understand organized crime <laughs> to begin right. with. Um, and, and they just make assertions. There are others who don't necessarily understand the behaviors of the intelligence community at all, which is why I go to great pains to go through academics on that on this show oh sometimes. God, right? Nonstop. Nonstop anymore with my in my Twitter. My uh, I got to turn off my DMs. It's like people ask me some like pointed question about intelligence, and it's always just yeah. so I can respond, and then they can like jump down my throat <laughs> because I don't believe their pet theory. You know, it's like... Uh, now you know why I don't do Facebook anymore, but yeah. I know. Uh-huh. I know. It's like, I don't claim to um, know 100% of what's going on at the CIA or in the intelligence community, and but you can tell people who have read one book and now do claim to know 100% of what's well, going see, on. That's it's trouble. another hazard of, the, I have of a, this field. I have a working knowledge of the intelligence community. Okay, I, I'm not stating that I'm any kind of expert. I have a working knowledge of it enough to navigate mm-hmm. the people's work that really do know it. Okay, right. that's that's where I'm at now. If you want to talk about organized crime, you know, in recent years I've decided to go a little more forward with the fact that, quite frankly, I know a little more about that than uh, than the average person, and it ain't on a Hollywood level. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to tell you, that, that has caused a strange strain of individuals to approach me as well. It's the same kind of thing where somebody reads a book, gets an interest, watches a couple of documentaries, and all of a sudden they have a pet theory, and I appreciate it, um, but they, they, they have a, a, a rudimentary lack of understanding about what it is they're discussing in so many ways sometimes. Mm-hmm. And now why do I bring this up and why am I going to the microcosm? Because here's the problem. <laughs> if you imagine the octopus as an octopus, mm-hmm. each one of these tentacles is 
discernibly different from the next. Okay? Mm-hmm. But they do come together in the one body. I mean, th- this is a strange kind of, you know, framework that, that, that I'm talking about here, and people are going to go, I'm getting lost. But if you study the octopus at all, <laughs> if you don't get lost, I really want to be your friend. Because I I can't do it without getting caught in a labyrinth or two as Mm -hmm. I go through. And I'm sure I have a good handle on a couple of those tentacles. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I think that Casalero's big mistake was really connecting it. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, the fact of the matter is we don't know what he came up with. I mean, like. Like his notes exist, and mm-hmm. they don't show that he really came up with anything. Like he has a lot of li- people's phone numbers and some documents, and um, you know, a couple like a book, a book uh, proposal that he wrote for the octopus. Which it isn't like any book proposal I've ever read. It's kind of mm-hmm. like a mass market ma- email type like thing with no actual like evidence or proof <laughs> it doesn't you know it's like um there Which, is some question as to whether his notes yeah like his sub- substantive notes that he had with him when he died in martinsburg in mm-hmm. august two, 1991 if they had been stolen or lost or whatever before he, before his death but it's like it's hard to believe that a journalist would have boxes and boxes of documents but only have the good ones on him and not really betray well, see, that's another weird thing here, and let's let's put this in proper context. When he died, mm-hmm. the technology that was available to the public is not what it is today. Mm-hmm. So mm. you have a discernibly different situation. I mean, we know today about what happened in the later 90s regarding the telecommunications and how, you know, information has become read by artificial intelligence. You know, the stuff of almost science fiction at right. that time is now commonplace reality that's mm-hmm. one problem the next problem is this is discernibly different from a gary webb situation uh it, there, there are similarities in that you have the circumstances of death being unusual and attributed to what again self-destruction right mm-hmm. um now is that possible yes but on the other hand is it suspicious yes mm-hmm. um but Gary Webb had some goods and right. you know and 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 were and some of it was published and that which wasn't published I mean I'd love to see the rest of Gary's notes but then again that would be difficult because of the trajectory his life went on and everything else and I don't even know fully the circumstances of Danny's death because you try and talk to somebody who was even you know appears to have been in his, uh, you know, gravitational pull at that time. And you don't know, you don't know what to make of that even, because different people tell different stories. So it's weird. Okay. So now, now we've been through a whole bunch of different ways that this can be very confusing. <laughs> Let's go to what we can boil Great down Great way to start it. a podcast, by the way. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> But you you know I'm not going to do this in the typical way. Um, so so here's the thing. Now let's take people into what it is that we do know and what it is you've decided to write about and why. Well, I mean, so you mentioned Inslaw. So 
the beginning of this whole store, this whole episode was this company called Inslaw. Mm-hmm. It had a software program called Promise, which was a, a database tool for managing legal cases in the criminal justice system. So um, case management software, like um, similar to like Lotus Notes or something. And um, the Reagan White House brought it into the, or the Reagan Justice Department brought it in for the use, signed like a big contract with Inslaw, almost automatically started reneging on it, stopped paying. Basically, it looks like driving them out of business, you know, driving them into bankruptcy. And um, almost like a catch and kill. Hamilton kind of came to the conclusion that that's exactly what was happening. Um, Reagan, you know, the people in the Justice Department wanted to kill off this company, buy it real cheap. And um, because it was, Mm -hmm. you know, by all accounts, a very, you know, could be a very financially lucrative software. Um, and it went to bankruptcy court in D.C., and um, the judge agreed. That's what happened. And then it was, there. I believe there was an appeal, and that judge agreed. And then eventually it got, the case got thrown out on a technicality. They basically said this shouldn't have been tried in bankruptcy court. So that's kind of like the basic, just the very basic outline of this Inslaw promise case. So, at one point, Bill Hamilton, he just won't let this go. You know, he shouldn't. You know, he's trying to get justice. And then all of a sudden, Moonies, you know, people connected to Moonies. LaRouche seems to be the big one. People from the LaRouche organization and Michael Reconosciuto, who's kind of like this freelance con artist guy, um, start filling Bill Hamilton's head up with all this stuff about, you know, promise has been hacked and now it's being used basically as like a super cyber weapon before we had the term cyber weapon um it's part of iran contra it's part of the october surprise all kinds of things um it's being sold all over the the world Uh uh the basic outline is that like this promise software it's a database so it's used by governments to keep track of sensitive stuff for their intelligence agencies well Before it was pirated and sold by Michael Reconosciuto, he added a trap door. So basically, all this, all these intelligence agencies around the world are using the software that NSA can just walk right into and get the data. Which you mean a backdoor? Crazy, but that's exactly like a backdoor. Yeah, I'm sorry. um, I'm sorry, but like a backdoor access is what he added to this thing. Which right. now he has the key to, and and my meanwhile, there there the, the, this is a lot of speculation. Well, uh, it's all speculation <laughs> for the That's most the part, right? Because no, I'm sorry to have interrupted, but I, I want to make no, this okay. clear that th- this is a lot of speculation, and one could say that the government tried to catch and kill the company, mm-hmm. but that could have been for a variety of different reasons, and right. then the software at this point again, I point out context. You know, is this even still useful anymore? Oh, I don't think it was, you know, a year later. See, that, <laughs> you know, that's the thing, and, though, is it's hard so, to judge. So that's yeah. the story, you yeah. know, so that's the story that I described, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, there's nothing real to, like, no concrete proof that, that all that ever happened. Um, 
and it goes, you know, boils down to like the Lyndon LaRouge people starting rumors and this Michael Conosciuto guy starting rumors. Um, now that happens, and then in 1990, uh, Bill Hamilton tries to get different journalists involved um, in taking on his case, and the one who who responded to it, everybody I spoke to that looked at this, that was a journalist knocking around D.C. in in the 1990s, they're like, yeah, we talked to Bill, you know. We took one look at this and said there's no way we're going to get to the bottom of this even if there's anything here. The only person that took him up on his offer was Danny Casolaro. And the story I'm telling and what I maintain is that Casolaro was spun out by Lyndon LaRouche and Michael Riconosciuto, basically more or less driven nuts. You know, you can very easily as a journalist or a researcher – Go down, go deep into these rabbit holes that you can't pull yourself out of, mm. and um, I think that's what happened to him. Along the way, however, there are a lot of really interesting aspects to the octopus that um, could have been their own stories. You know, it's right. like basically Danny was looking for like the kind of like the holy grail that would match October Surprise, um, Inns Law. Any number of these stories, if he had picked one, you know, and, ran, you know, took it to the finish line, you know, I think maybe things would have been different. But he was trying to join them all together and it just didn't happen. And then okay. for whatever reason, he ended up dead. Well, see, and that's the thing is people that are legitimately searching for a journalistic reality, a truth that mm-hmm. can be told. Um, in, in my educated opinion about this, can be driven to a, a, a point of uh, mental illness. They mm-hmm. really can, if they are legitimately searching for something and there are labyrinthian defenses against getting at that something. Um, oh, yeah. And that happens a little more often than most people in you know conspiracy culture circles would like to admit. Now, if you have a con artist who's in play, they can do this endlessly and go through the different rabbit holes and celebrate them as they go, and it doesn't matter if they contradict themselves and everything else. They don't care. And there are grifters that are out there Mm -hmm. that are in many fields, but in the conspiracy culture uh, uh, area of intellect, you will find it uh, highly populated with grifters, okay? And the sad thing is that I've known people legitimately that have climbed into a bottle, Mm -hmm. that have snapped one way or another, (laughs) whether publicly or privately, that have uh, gone too far, destroyed their relationships, destroyed their, their way of making a living and everything else. And not because there were nefarious forces against them, but because they became so absorbed by the thing that they were covering. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'm choosing my words carefully here. I don't know if you notice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but they become so absorbed into the thing that they're covering that it just it just breaks part of their mind. And it may be temporary. It may be permanent. Uh, you know, it, it, it could be they climb in that bottle for the rest of their lives, or they do it for a little while, and they come back and... 
gotta tell you, a, a, a lot of times you don't make it out alive. Well, and then add to that, I mean, there's enormous psychic pressure mm-hmm. when you're, you know, studying these these types of subjects. And then add to that, you mentioned the grifters, the con artists. Uh, those people are. There are people out there. If you are. If you are investigating something, and this hap, you know, you, from the lowliest researcher to like a celebrated, you know, uh, investigative journalist like a Seymour Hersh type, right? While you're investigating, there you will attract people that are con artists, that are psychos that are out to get you, and occasionally that work for intelligence agencies that are trying to muddy the waters, right? And they will spin you around, and I think. You know, Danny Castellaro ran into all three types of those people. Yeah, see, that that was going to be my question is, was this something that was done by, you know, uh, uh, the, the typical friendly fire that comes up? And maybe is it possible that because he did not limit himself to uh, a single or, you know, maybe a pair of tentacles on the octopus... Is it possible that he was literally besieged on so many different sides because of that? I mean, obviously, I'm asking for your opinion here. Yeah, and, I mean, it's just it's yeah. hard to say precisely what's what's going on. Like, was Ari Ben Menashe completely full of shit, or just excuse me, completely full of it, or just kind of full of it? Was he? Um, hmm. You know, was he, you know, muddying the waters for somebody? Is he a grifter? I, you know, you don't know. You just don't know. But you get a sense when talking to these people that oftentimes something just isn't right, right. about them. Um, and, you know, so many people, um, I'll go into this in later articles. <laughs> I thought I was going to finish this in like three installments. We're up to like number eight or something. <laughs> well, but, see, but uh, that's the thing is that when when you first glance at this, you say, Again, as I said at the beginning, it's like, well, I can see organized crime works with the government. And I can see that, you know, software developers have to work with the government. I mean, look at the age we live in. Okay, you can go bit by bit and say you can see how each one of these tentacles could connect to the singular body. But it's not that simple. No, it really isn't. (laughs) And, you know, I'm to my credit, you know, I do have kind of like a kind of I do have one point I'm getting at. But once I started writing it i was like i'm having a lot of fun i'm doing this for my newsletter so i'm the editor so if i want to (laughs) like go into some weird tangents i can people seem to like it why not just stretch this out i'm uh i'm working on my next book and i think this is going to be a large part of it so i'm kind of you know so i'm not completely wasting my my life with this but fair enough (laughs) i mean people it's tough finding people to talk to about this stuff um i went to the um the detective who investigated the suicide slash murder, the death, let's call it, in um, Martinsburg. And mm-hmm. he, he didn't answer the phone. Like, it looked like a caregiver or maybe like a daughter or something answered the phone. And she flipped out on me. She's like, I'm calling the police. I'm like, oh, poor woman. I'm probably like only the latest lunatic to come and knock on the door thinking I was going to like, you know, crack the case or something, you know? I, look, um, I, I totally sympathize with that. You know, j- just looking at a JFK thing, I went to go talk to a Dallas cop, and I'm not going to name which one. He mm-hmm. literally threatened to draw down on me uh, yeah. just for knocking on his door where he was like, I got guns. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know? Uh, 
And and I come to find out he was so fed up with yeah. people coming to see him with their, you know, with their theories and blaming him for stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, you don't even know what, what some of these guys and I look, I, I am not somebody who generally has sympathy for cops, okay? Yeah. But <laughs> when somebody comes at you constantly and yeah. all kinds of very strange fringe individuals, you know, uh, just harass you. Yeah, you, you could see that somebody that might want to be protective of that guy is like, you know what, I'm going to call the cops. I'm, I'm not even going to... Because she's already been through it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, she doesn't know that you're you're a nice guy and you're not right. going to, you know, drive people up a wall or start, you know, accusing them of killing babies or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, well, yeah, I know you killed Danny Casalero, you know, might be the thing. That he, the, you know, Why are you covering up the truth, man? You're covering up the truth. What are they paying you? You know, I mean, and, and this guy could be like, you know what? I'm good on this and really, really <laughs> wish I didn't pull that, you know, assignment that day. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I am. Um, you know, it's taken me a while to, like, resist that uh, journalist's urge, that reporter's urge to go out, f- go to people's houses and talk to them. But I'm like, with stories like this, you send a polite letter. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you know, you say, completely understand. If you don't want to talk to me, if you would talk to me, here's my phone number and just leave it at that. And right. it's like, I mean, it's a shame. I mean, I think a part of the, the story I'm telling is how, like, conspiracy theorists screw everything up for the rest of us and like i am um, oh i know we both are in the realm of government conspiracies but like i just can't get away from using that phrase because it's like the only one that people knew what i'm talking about when i use I, it i know you know but it's like but i'm talking about the people who are like truly not so don't care about other people's time you know the kind of people that have probably terrorized this poor guy it's like um, I feel like people like that are why we're never going to get to the bottom of what happened to Danny Casolaro. It's like yeah. the story gets so muddied so quickly that there are a lot of like important stories like this that nobody, you know, will never know the truth of because, you know, the damage has already been done as far as whether it's purposeful misinformation or disinformation or if it's just like stupidity that's been spread by conspiracy theorists all these years you know let's see it would be one thing if it was just see this this is where i i know for a fact that there is a reason why you know when i see people like with the youtube you know video or whatever they want to put it on and say look this guy's ducking the truth because he's angry when i ask him a question i'm like yeah context man you know, how many yeah. times has he been approached now? And, and the answer to to a question in Skype is very simple. What did you say to the guy when he said he had guns? I said, I got a camera is what I is what I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's the thing, though. He's already dealt with a bunch of people who have gone there to try and, you know, point a camera in his face mm-hmm. and say, all right, so tell us how you were involved in the conspiracy. You know, tell us how you were involved in the murder. Didn't you kill J.D. Tippett? You know. This guy who was a retired cop, who is at the end of his days, probably, yeah, is sitting there going, man, I am done with hearing about this. And, and again, it's like, you know, yeah, don't ask me about the, the, you know, hundred crimes I solved or when I did, you know, good for this or that or the other thing. People are going to accuse me. People are going to come at me. People are going to waste my time. And you, you got to have some sympathy for that, especially if it's, you know, uh, a, a high-profile story, right? Um, 
And that's the thing about this is that these people that approach, I appreciate what it, what their intent is, but they they have no knowledge again of how to behave, because even at their best, they will contaminate a witness mm-hmm. at their best. Like, you know, again, I'll I'll just go back to the JFK thing real quick. There was a guy named Gerald Custer whose testimony changed over the years many times. And I can literally track when he was being, like, just bombarded by certain authors who had their theories. And you could literally see his testimony, his revelations, everything twist and turn based on the influence of these people coming at him. He was trying to be accommodating the whole way through. Now, Mm -hmm. other people become resistant the whole way through now because they they get defensive. They don't want their career attacked. They don't want their home invaded. They don't want people following them around. Maybe I'll pick through his garbage. They don't want none of this. And they're stuck with it anyway. So that is an interesting element of this that I think, you know, should be at least acknowledged by people who are interested in stuff like this is you got to you got to know how to handle talking to people and you got to also uh not necessarily let this guy be flooded with everybody in the world because at the end of the day nobody's going to get a good story right okay and who who wins nobody so right. no i just want to make that point but please continue because you're still writing this and you're having fun with it because look it's a very diverse set of topics <laughs> mm-hmm. and i get that and that's right up you know that's that's in, in joseph l flatley's wheelhouse boy is you know a diverse sort of set of circumstances going on <laughs> <laughs> well, um and um maybe at the uh, end of our conversation we'll hit this up this is for my newsletter mm-hmm. uh failed state update the newsletter lenny flatley.substack.com um it's currently free i don't know how long it's going to be free probably for a while and, um, you know, once every other week or so, I'm doing an, another installment on the the uh, the octopus, as well as, you know, other other articles that I'm writing. Um, I think I'm up to like there's three on the website now. And I don't know. I have at least three more that are coming out. Um, so which, so, by I mean, the way, I signed up for recently and I want you guys to know it is well worth it. Um really interesting stuff and yeah like he said you, you get these articles and he's the editor and uh it, it's it is purely uh a a joseph l flatley kind of thing <laughs> what 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 is that again though it's substack because i get confused with your web addresses oh You're... yeah so i mean lenny flatley.substack.com uh okay so same as the website it, yep. you know like lenny flatley.net is his website which I know you can get to the Substack from your website, right? Yeah, it's the it says it in really big letters right at top. If you if you know my website or there you if go. you go to my web my Twitter Len, at Lenny Flatley, it's all there. No, I got you, and I'll and I'll give everybody your website and the Twitter address and the Substack sweet, address sweet. in the show notes. But I I just want to make sure we got that clear. But go ahead with the with the newsletter. Yeah. So um, so you know I'm kind of working my way towards. Um, I don't think I'm spoiling too much to kind of, you know, get to the end. It's just I see that, you know, there's definitely a right-wing disinformation network that was happening. Um, 
I don't need to tell you this, but I guess for the re, you know for the listener, um, kind of the big sea change when Ronald Reagan, you know, end of the uh, Carter administration into the Reagan and then Bush administrations was this kind of like stepping up the privatization of the intelligence network. They mm-hmm. talk, you know, of the intelligence community. They talk about the company, the CIA versus the enterprise, which was like the shadow CIA or these private individuals that were kind of pushed out of the CIA, you know, when, uh, when Carter and Stansfield Turner tried to reform, you know, did their like half-ass reformation of the CIA that didn't work, you know? So it pushed all these hardcore operators from the OSS and from the cold war, these cold warriors out into private enterprise. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm looking at that, not only is that, are they engaged in, you know, co- covert operations? But there's a a disinformation network that forms that goes on to, you know, push hardcore right-wing ideologies and disinformation. And I think that the Castellero story is a part of that. And actually, you can, through looking at Castellero and his and the people who are obsessed with Castellero and who basically built the octopus mythos after Castellero's death, which is the Moonies, the LaRouche people. I think um, you can, you actually are seeing the beginnings of what we have now with like Roger Stone and Fox news and, and QAnon. So there's a connective thread there. I'm not entirely sure, you know, I'm not saying it's like, the puppet master pulling the strings, but you do see the same players playing throughout all this. And you do see like a set of set of policy goals that, um, or at least ideological statements that are connected. Yeah. And this gave birth in my estimation to the, you know, that the loose confederation of the, you know, Chris Ruddy and Breitbart and, uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what we see today is OANN and all that. Which is really strange because it makes for some odd bedfellows, um, in my mind. But I think you're, uh, you're you're right on point. Looking at the Larouche organization, and I, I, I constantly ask this of other people that you know study these kind of things, like why is it that we're not looking at that organization because they continue to live and breathe, mm-hmm. and they do it pretty well funded. Um, despite the fact that a a good portion of America probably has no idea who I mean when I say Lyndon LaRouche, you know, they, they, got to go do a a Google search, you know, um, they, they don't know who it is. They don't know who that is. They don't know that that organization existed and still exists. They don't know that, uh, you know, yeah, there may have been infighting this and that, but, uh, but a lot of stuff orchestrated a massive, uh, sort of ecosystem Mm-hmm. of disinformation was generated uh, long before we had this, you know, Internet access, long before. And it was done with organizations like LaRouche and like some others. And Roger Stone has been, you know, a, 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 a greasy player <laughs> long, long time. Matter of fact, yeah. if you think about it, it's really interesting because Stone getting jettisoned from Washington sort of coincides with this 
And I yes. always find that weird is that, that that's right around the time he got busted for, you know, advertising in the adult underground magazines. And, you know, people <laughs> thought that that maybe might have not been so good, by the way. That makes him very unhappy when it's brought up. But anyway, um, the real reason why he was probably jettisoned from D.C., well, look, I invite you to draw your own conclusions. But a good excuse was, you know, straight up uh, caught, you know, advertising in the adult uh you know swinger mags swinger mags there you go i was looking for a term thank you um worked perfectly thing is though it's really interesting when you follow that trajectory that strange sort of uh, uh uh mildew that was collected there the oddity of you know the bush administration the one year bush administration there hw uh all of the scandals that could have broken were controlled and then the rise of, as every single technology emerges, another entity picks up that mantle and becomes part of this right-wing ecosystem of disinformation. Mm -hmm. Now, that in and of itself is a story that, quite frankly, I haven't seen a journalist cover adequately yet. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, I'm kind of crawling in that direction. Um, ah. I don't know that. I mean, I think that's the end result of all this. I don't know if that's something that I put together in time for part six of this story or if that's going to be <laughs> much okay. farther down the road. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's really what interests me about all this is there's... I mean, there is such an important core to this story, and it's not what people think it is, you know? Right. No, look, absolutely true. So with the last nine minutes or so that I've got with you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I'd love for you to sort of uh, give people a basic summation. Obviously, you're not going to get everything that uh, that he's published. But if you go over to LennyFlatley.net and you follow those instructions about signing up for that newsletter, you can start to catch up. Plus, there are past articles that you've written. There are past podcasts that you've done. Uh, and, and clearly, look, if you're not interested in the octopus, the failed state update in and of itself as a podcast is worth the effort to get it. I'm going to tell you that right now. Plus the so-called profit from Pittsburgh. Uh, anyway, there's that. There's the many writings that Joseph L. Flatley has done, which are even if you are not necessarily somebody who is uh, accustomed to some of the worlds that he might bring you into. <laughs> <laughs> I assure you it's done in an entertaining and well-written fashion. And uh, and, and I, I feel no shame in telling you, you're one of my favorite authors because you. you're, you're actually able to keep me engaged, even in a topic that I don't necessarily want to read about. For some reason, Joe keeps me going. And I, I don't know what it is. Can't explain it. But I'm telling you, if you check out the stuff at LennyFlatley.net, you will find that out, too. I'm sure of it because I'm a harsh, harsh literary <laughs> critic. I mean, there there have been some fairly well-known names recently that I irritated uh, and, and couldn't bring on the show because I, I wasn't fond of their work. <laughs> I, I had fondness for part of their work, but not all of it, and therefore disqualified me from bringing them on. Well, yeah, they don't want to hear that. No. Um, <laughs> but here we are, and, and uh, also, you know, Look, I, I won't mention the name of the book or anything, but if you go over to Feral House, maybe I'll put the link to Feral House in the uh, in the description of the show. 
go over there, check that out too. And in a future show, I intend to discuss that book, which we were initially going to discuss during this yeah. hour. Well, you know, but, so just so we don't sound insane talking around it, my book, yours. New Age Grifter, <laughs> the true story of Gabriel Urantia and his cosmic family. It's a, it's a book about a UFO cult in Arizona and we're dealing with problems with the distributor. It's COVID. There's a paper shortage. I guess there were uh, forest fires in Canada, whatever. It's kind of like bubbling onto Amazon, like 10 copies at a time. So it's like, it was out. It was out. It came out on the 24th. It was out for like a week and a half. And mm -hmm. then I looked last night on Amazon and it said, we have 10 copies. So um, I would tell people that if, you know, a bizarro UFO cult slash new age band uh, might be interesting. Uh, go to my website, check out the podcast, the so-called Prophet from Pittsburgh. And if you're so inclined, you know, see if you can't pick up a copy of my book. And yes, I'll definitely, once we get the, the kinks sorted out, I will definitely come on your show and talk about it in detail because oh, yeah. it's a great story. No, it is an incredible story. And frankly, I'm going to tell you this. I thought, and, and maybe some people are listening to this and going, look, I listened to the podcast series. Um, there's already, I'm not done with the book, but there's already stuff in that book that I know wasn't in the podcast series. So <laughs> I'm just yeah, telling you, know, you. The podcast was really the story of ex-members, dissatisfied ex-members told right. through their stories and their words. Um, so with the book, I was really able to go into like, the beliefs of Gabriel that, you know, I read all his books and, you know, and it's yeah. like, and, you know, the kind of the yeah. history of like alternative religions in America and why do people follow end times preachers? So it's like, it's definitely a slightly different take. And I think the two, you know, obviously complement each other because they're on the same topic, but there's no way you're going to like listen to the podcast and be like, oh, I've had enough. And then no, not want to read the book. And here's the thing. If you enjoyed that podcast, this literally fills in a whole lot of the stuff that, quite frankly, as a listener to that podcast, I was saying to myself all the way along, I get hints uh, <laughs> about stuff like this. And I go, yeah, but how does that really work? Like, I don't necessarily understand how it is that he sort of hooked these people into this because, okay. The podcast is one thing. This is another, and I'm telling you, they are perfect companions. So, for those of you that uh, that enjoyed that podcast series, the so-called so-called Prophet from Pittsburgh, right? Mm -hmm. If you enjoyed that, you kind of need this book. You really do because it's <laughs> it's the perfect companion. But we will discuss it on a future show. Meanwhile, uh, now I'm just going to hand you about five minutes. And uh, tie a bow on this any way you like. I I, uh, I know I did this in a slightly unconventional way, but uh, what are you going to do? It's my show. Uh, this is what I do. <laughs> so, and That's you know that. Listen. And you know that. So, uh, and I appreciate you, man. I really do. I even booked this interview, honestly, through his publicist, not because I had to, but just because I wanted to. I just thought it would be funny to do that and uh, and, and actually know the person already because <laughs> I wanted to see what she was going to pitch me without realizing yeah. how much I knew about you or whatever. Uh, it, it was it was really good. And by the way, they're, they're doing they're doing a good job like selling you. I just want you to know Great. on a personal level. But uh, yeah. but I would have talked to you anyway. You didn't even need to. Your publicist didn't need to do it, or the 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 PR person at Feral House, whatever her actual title is. Uh, Man, she's doing a good job. 
I'm just after, saying. Do, after booking myself on all these shows for all these years, it's nice to have somebody else do the work for once. No, I got you, but I'm just saying I would have had John without <laughs> that. But uh, but oh, definitely. Either way, uh, so go go ahead, man. Take a couple of minutes here and and uh, let's let's try and drive a little more traffic toward this uh, set of uh, the set of articles on the octopus, which is still as yet incomplete. Uh, so you, you you can get new material even if you go there and read it all up in one day uh, mm-hmm. and check it all out in one day. There's new material coming, and of course, sign up uh, for his Substack and get there while it's free. Do that for sure, because uh, you know even if it does wind up costing people a couple of bucks, it's going to be worth the price of admission. So get it while it's free, and uh, you know. Joe, what else you got to say? Oh, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, one reason, one important reason that I think it's lost from this all the time, from from the octopus all the time is I that I did. The one reason I did the story was Danny Castellaro himself. You know, it's mm-hmm. like. I think he was 44 when he died. He was having some, you know, problems with his career, um, but. You know, he just seemed like a really great guy, and his the way he died, whether it was murder or suicide, you know, like, was extremely tragic. And I just felt, you know, I'm shocked that I even found kind of a unique angle into this, because I really just thought, I've been captivated by this story for 30 years now. Mm. He, You know, uh, August, um, you know, August 1991 was when he died so this august was the 30th anniversary and i just thought let's just use this opportunity to look at the guy and kind of tell his story and kind of honor his legacy a little bit you know sure he didn't he didn't win in the sense that he didn't finish his book he didn't bring down the octopus you know i might have some disagreements with his reporting but like he was a real person with a family and i mean not anybody, not everybody could captivate as many people as he has for three decades now. So, you know, so I think that's kind of like beyond everything. That's my major, you know, the reason that I looked into it. I just think it's a fantastic story. And I would implore your listeners to check it out at LennyFlatley.substack.com. There you have it. So there's all that, plus all the other work of Joseph L. Flatley, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I've got a bad word to say about any of it, and uh, that's unusual. <laughs> so, you know, there it is. It's uh, it, and it's it is unusual in and of itself. Your work, my friend. Uh, there are some very quirky aspects to what you do that uh, that make you a, a very unique author. And uh, so, I appreciate the fact that uh, you've always been friendly to coming on this show and discussing your work because. Uh, I think it needs to be gotten out to as many people as possible. And I, I, I hope one of these days that you're so big that you start ignoring my messages. Cause, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I want to see. I want to, I want to see you go, uh, real, real wide with this book and with what it is you're doing because, uh, man, it deserves a lot more light on it. Anyways, Joseph L. Flatley again, LennyFlatley.net. And he gave you the Substack, but there's that. Plus, I'll give you his Twitter handle and all that. And uh, maybe you can bother him about conspiracy theories and uh, direct messages. Since you guys do it to me all the time. Anyhow, <laughs> Joe, man, thanks for doing this. And uh, sorry we cut it a little short, but, you know, things happen. Thanks, Chuck. It's always a pleasure. 
Anyway, hopefully we'll get him back on the show soon. But in the next hour, another unique author, Terry Tapp, will be with us. Stick around. The Ocelli Effect continues after this. Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. Ocelli.com. Do you like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools? Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before. That'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. Revelation through conversation. Okay, you know, for, you go for those of you, well, for those of you live on the stream, hold on a second, Terry. <laughs> for those of you live on the stream, I am, I, I have Terry Tab with me. We're just organizing a couple of things, and we'll be with you shortly. Of course, if you're catching this in podcast form, you're going to be like, what are you talking about? We are a little late on the hour, and who knows, we might just make this an extended episode, but stick around. We'll be right with you. Learn from our so the second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now. <laughs> Here live. I, I kind of cut off Terry. He was in the middle of telling me something there during the break, but eh, we're just going to go live and see how it goes. First of all, Terry Tapp is with me, and if you don't know who Terry Tapp is, you should go over to terrytapp.com and check things out. Not only is he an incredible artist, but an author and, well, geez, tattoo guy. I, I separate tattoo guys from regular artists because that's a whole other skill set that, eh, I don't know. It's it's a skill set unto itself almost. I know it's an art. I know it's an art form, you know. But then again, so are the culinary skills. Uh, most tattoo guys I know can't cook. But but anyway, I, that's irrelevant. Terry is one of these guys who can do just about everything. It seems like if it's creative, Terry Tapp seems to figure out a way to tackle it. He's done podcasts. He's done radio shows. Like I said, he wrote a book. Uh, you know, he's written many other things. He's done various types of artwork. I, I, I don't know where to begin to explain who you are, but terrytap.com, go over there. I'll give you the link to that and a few other spots where you can check out Terry's work. Um, and it's been a little while since we talked to him because uh, he wasn't feeling well last week. So had to postpone last week's uh, discussion, and we've even gotten a, a real treat. Uh, a few times in some of Terry's last appearances where he read to us from some stuff that has not yet been published, which I found fascinating, and I know a lot of you guys did too. Uh, anyways, all that aside, first of all, i got to find out how Terry's doing because 
Uh, since he's come back to the United States, and we do know he's in that New York area, he mentions it all the time, that means he just uh, dealt with the remains of uh, the tropical storm Ida as well. Um, so maybe he's got a perspective different than Dylan's, because Dylan, in South Jersey, said he wasn't really affected, but I do know that, uh, well, the majority of the 50 or whatever deaths they're reporting occurred in New Jersey, but there are some strange scenes that came from New York that struck me as wholly bizarre. I never remember seeing water pouring into the subway like that. Um, but but anyway, look, I, I'm observing it from afar, right? Terry Tapp was there, so I want to first find out how he's doing, how he's feeling, but secondly, uh, maybe if you could give us a little first-hand report about what you saw regarding Tropical Storm Ida, which, for no apparent reason, I'm just going to tell you that that was my great-grandmother's name. Um, so, (laughs) and my mother's middle name. Oh, boy, I just gave out one of those security questions. Anyhow, Terry, how you doing, man? Uh, I am doing fine, man, and I I have to uh, put a a tack on that because, you know, compared to the people around me, I feel ashamed to uh to complain about anything uh, it was uh it was devastating and as you said you know if you can if you look online if you're not in new york city um you see the mess that was here i actually am in um an old factory building i rent the entire top of the whole old factory building and uh i sp- slice it up and other artists have you know their studios in here along with me so uh, I, I don't use the entire factory, but uh, but in this building on the in the basement we're in the top, thank God. In the basement is a motorcycle gang, and uh, they you know they have an external door at street level, and then uh, their their clubhouse you know hangout is downstairs, and so uh, they had five feet of water in that. Mm. My uh, my daughter and I were here. Uh, working in the studio on Wednesday night, and I happened to, uh, you know, I I was going to take a uh, a small video of the rain for a friend of mine just to show her nothing, you know, how people do this kind of stuff. And so I went to the back of the building. There's a balcony that looks out over the street. I was walking to that. My daughter said she was hungry, so we were going to get some food for her. And I walked to the back, took this one you know, 30 second footage of the the rain. And as I walked to the balcony, I looked down at the street and I said, Oh my God, <laughs> it was, uh, the street was, uh, a river and, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually in a depression, you know, of a, a street level. One of the cars was bobbing, beginning to Bob. Um, it was horrible. I, um, uh, I talked to my daughter she was hungry. I said, well, you know, obviously you're not going to go home. You're going to be here. Like, this is something like, this is totally unexpected. And, um, I got my boots, my old boots on so I could, I, cause I thought it would be deep. And I have some military boots from the Soviet union from the seventies, mm. uh, that are too big for, but I got my daughter to pull on because I knew they'd be sturdy. And we, uh, we went outside and we couldn't get to the store. It was so deep. Just leaving the fence, um, you know, the water was already almost up to my knees, just in the back lot. Mm. And uh, as we went to the street, 
it was uh, it was not doable, and the rain was pouring so much. You know, we, it was uh, it was soaking us already. So we went back in, and then uh, my daughter was chilling out, and she heard an alarm. The freight elevator, the old freight elevator here, was uh, the alarm was going off. I called the buildings, one of their owners, one of the owners of the building, and uh, he said what I thought it was, which was an indicator that water was approaching the electrical components of the freight elevator and uh it's still you know if you go down the hall here you can still hear the uh i walked down here in fact just for uh radio realism but you can hear the uh, alarm going you know and just chugging away uh no one could do anything about it because there's so much damage in certain parts of the city they're still catching up you know at uh the, the place where my daughter lives the the basement uh the guy lives in there and he got you know, three feet of water, you can hear it dimly here, still right. running itself down. You know, it's it's you can, <laughs> it's gotten weaker because it's been going for several days now. But uh, but yeah, it it was just crazy. And uh, I, there were people, obviously, if you read the news, there are people right by here that died. You know, there were basement apartments. Um, we uh, I when I took my daughter home, you know, there were cars that had been abandoned in the middle of the street. The lights, you know, still flashing despair, you know, stress. It's a very strange uh, situation. And it was it was only abandoned cars and cops out when I took her home. All the water at about 4 a.m., 3-something a.m. had receded, and uh, there was just garbage everywhere and, uh, you know, and cops on the street. Really strange. There was a semi that had gotten stuck and was pointed the wrong way on a street here uh on the whatever given location and things but it's in this area right and uh you know i couldn't figure out I, I was looking straight at the truck and trying to figure out how to get around the truck and maintain my the car on the street and i pulled slowly beside it and these cops came out and were angry you know telling me to get moving and blah you know whatever right strange situation man very stressful and uh like i said i i really you know i hesitate to, to complain about anything because uh people have died people have lost everything even the the motorcycle gang here um they uh you know without going to all their business i will say they they lost everything they mm -hmm. uh with five feet of water and a bunch of motorcycle parts and uh whatever else political stuff they've got going on you know everything was lost right right so uh one one thing after another, man. Crazy. Uh, no, it was a, it was a crazy situation to observe from a distance, and I I, I said to myself, I, I have no reference for this, um, <clears throat> even though I'd been up there for hurricanes, and other storms and stuff like that, and there have been times where the ocean has pushed inland, um, <clears throat> but this wasn't what happened here. This was such a deluge of water from the sky that it just created a flash flood situation that had nothing to do with the bodies of water. I mean, of course, if you were near a body of water, it rose up, but this was literally like from the rainfall directly. It wasn't about, you know, the ocean is now sweeping inland or something like that. This was, uh, this was like, you know, inescapable. Um, yeah. I did, did not dissipate as I believe they anticipated. They, the meteorologist right. anticipated it would. It just came over us and dumped water. I know looking at a, I saw some scenes from Patterson, New Jersey, which right. looks nightmarish. 
but um there it's bad i i saw you know um in this area of uh, brooklyn and queens i saw a um, couple of photos of some stores not far from here that just collapsed you know mm-hmm. water came in and of course it uh you know hits a structural wall or something loosens it and your roof goes well so, i think uh, also people don't reckon with okay so I know Jersey City, I know New Brunswick and areas like that, and I know why the flooding was so devastating there. Um, and New Brunswick is one of those areas that was hit pretty good. Uh, yeah. But I think people outside of New York City might fail to understand exactly how elaborate the underground is. Um, there's a lot of places where you don't even necessarily see the basements, right? People walk over grates all the time in the city and don't realize, you know, they're walking over the basement doors to something. Now, some of that is storage and, you know, some of it's whatever and some of it's, well, where after hours joints might be or whatever. But, um, you know, in recent times, a lot of people have wound up living there. Now, when Superstore and Sandy came through, uh, it was advisable to get the hell in your basement. Um... And I don't think anybody was properly prepared for, well, this. Uh, There there was no preparation that would have been proper here, and there was no way to, like, sandbag this in New York or whatever because regardless of those steel doors keeping out most things, it wasn't keeping out water. Plus the grate system that runs throughout that allows, you know, the the subway to breathe and everything else. Uh, Of course, I'm sure you saw the images of that, like, waterfall pouring into the subway. Yeah, um, that was amazing. I've never seen anything like and water pouring down the steps. I mean, I had reports from people that I knew that uh, that told me, man, you don't even know what this looked like. This was insane. Um, yeah. And I, I tend to believe it. And it, it goes beyond what the news media showed us, but, you know, as per usual. Uh, but, uh, but, but certainly it's, uh, it, it, it was kind of a wild thing and you're not even, not even finished with the storm season as far as the Northeast goes. Uh, yeah. you know, th- this isn't like Sandy where it was like at the end and then a Nor'easter came through, um, which was a whole other bizarre thing. Cause I was in that blacked out area in Jersey where, yeah, you have no electricity now for weeks. Um, so that didn't That's happen. Crazy, but yeah, that was a weird situation, believe it. Sandy was was nuts, you know, but uh yeah, it's a it's it's really uh just a bizarre thing. And yeah. uh the there's a guy who works right by here. I ended up talking with him this morning. He said he uh he was on the Long Island Expressway and it became unpassable. And uh he was about to be trapped on that. Uh, I didn't quite understand if he was – the water was rising, and I don't know if he was going. If he was saying that he would be trapped and unable to leave the expressway or he would be trapped and uh, and drowned or if his car, you know, bobbed off uh, the expressway. But he said in the nick of time I pulled out, you know, and was uh, was on the side or on a, uh, an exit, and he said that he received a call – Someone said, you know, he should come here and check this place out, which probably had to do with my call to the owner, one of the owners, to say, mm-hmm. you know, there's an alarm going off. And uh, he said, he told the guy, you know, like, it's not raining a lot. It's it's crazy. It's not just like a lot of rain. And uh, the guy asked him, he said, can you get over here? And he said, absolutely not. So um, it's strange, man. I, I, don't, I don't know what to say about it. I know there are a lot of people... 
uh, doing community work, I received a couple of emails about some volunteer options, which I'm going to take. Uh, just trying to work around the schedule, but um, you know, I really think that, you know it's moments like this that you, you know, the uh, the Amish or the uh, socialist or whatever adage about from each according to his ability to each according to his need mm. really comes into play. If you're uh, like me, you're lucky. You know, you you didn't lose things. You uh, you're not hungry. You're not uh, you're not homeless. Mm. Then you owe it to people to get out there and do something. And so there are these opportunities, you know, that they've got through uh, through some of the Congress people here that they're organizing and uh, also through uh, there's an eco-socialist thing, which I signed up for, which is, you know, volunteering to help bring people food or, you know, just deal with some of the mess. This was, I have to say, this is on top of uh, an already grim situation. I, uh, I was driving down in the neighborhood down a street I hadn't mm. uh, I normally don't drive early in the morning the other day and um, I didn't realize this uh, this procession of people this uh, this line that I thought I'd seen before and was correct I'd seen it uh, it is a giant line of people waiting to get food families old people mm. you know kids just waiting for handouts and uh, I ended up driving by back that afternoon so early morning to middle of the afternoon and the line is still there and actually it's two lines it was coming from both directions so um you know on top of a situation in which you have that many people right here needing food uh now you have this well you and uh, i have yeah you and i have over the course of the past year and a half honestly uh discussed this uh situation and you know the the economic impact obviously you know covid in and of itself plus other conditions that have uh you know taken hold of the circumstance there uh you know this is kind of the thing that is not needed i mean it's just and what's really horrific about this in my mind is you know i i see two two different uh equally powerful bolts coming off of the same uh uh you know lightning strike here because there's people down south that got hit with flooding as well but also a lot of wind damage uh so you don't have like one area that really got pounded by this one storm this thing actually did significant damage to two separate areas far away from each other um and i find it remarkable that uh you know that this happened but also it's uh you know if i were still up there i i would probably be uh you know volunteering something to try and get water to people to try and get food to people to uh you know try and get people uh, a a way to stand back up again one way or another because that's what you got to do um and and it's just unbelievable to me that it's you know, it's almost out of the news cycle now, uh, you know, where it's like, eh, okay, so that happened, that was bad, and yeah, there are deaths, and they're going to keep adding to that death toll, but, you know, and make sure to tell you about, you know, the baby ripped out of the mama's arms, because, you know, that's a common thread, just like they're telling you about the, the, the guy who heard voices in Florida and decided to shoot the mother holding the child, uh, yeah. even though he has absolutely no reason for it, there's no motive so far. You know, just guy probably snapped and was likely a veteran who wasn't being properly taken care of. But other than that, 
you know, it's it, it's going to go with what bleeds next will lead next. And I think it's going to be quickly forgotten. I know there's been, you know, state of emergency. You got the, uh, the new uh, governor who has uh, yeah. ascended because Cuomo's out of there. So one, yeah, and good riddance to it. So. Hey, look, one good piece of news. He can't misreport the numbers. Uh, yeah. You know, but, uh, yeah. okay, fine. I know I'm, that's some dark humor there. I apologize. But, I mean, truth oh, is, boy. you know, uh, uh, better better that that guy's gone before this than now. Uh, let, let, let's let uh, Holcomb or, or whatever her name is, uh, hopefully she'll do the job. And de Blasio, I'm not a fan of, but, you know, hopefully he'll get the job done also. I don't know. You know, I, I hope that uh, everybody, including the untrustworthy government, all comes together and does the right thing by people that have been displaced and harmed here. Uh, because, you know, what, what are you going to do? You're going to blame people for, you know, an act of nature? Uh, well, you know, man, we've really come to an impasse, and uh, we see it more and more. We've, we've been living in a way that's unsustainable. I'm not talking about just recycling, which is fair enough, but a very a tiny point. Our, our ways of thinking, our ways of organizing our cities, our ways of uh, getting food, our ways of uh, working, everything has been out of balance with not only the planet itself, but, uh, but our needs. You know, uh, one thing that I recognize even being in Europe, which Europe is no paradise, it's Europe. But, uh, you know, compared to the United States, just uh, the daily living uh, is so much healthier and calmer and um you know just more humane so in all ways we've been living out of place and uh now we have to get in place we have to get in into a a state of being that allows us to keep going and we've come to that impasse we can't keep living like this Um, we might even be beyond our ability to repair things hopefully not at least uh, to some great extent, but we're we're definitely at a point where we have to address the fact that we can't go on this way, and uh, we have to change. Right. Well, look, at all times, a new paradigm can be established, but recovery or repair, well, that's yet another issue. Uh, So it could be that a new way of thinking needs to be had here, and I didn't even mean to go into this direction, but you know what? You kick the door open. Let's go. Uh, there, there is there is a reality here that the very delicate systems that people take for granted uh, are not reliable, quite honestly. And yeah. I think that's what's been revealed here. Uh, no matter what you think of the COVID paradigm, no matter what you think of the economic this and that and the third thing paradigms, no matter what you think of the uh, food desert paradigm, no matter what you think of any of it, uh, quite frankly, the one thing that people should be able to universally agree with is that this is not working properly uh, for the majority of people. So, therefore, shouldn't there be changes? I mean, I don't know why it is that we can't come up with a universal agreement like that, that clearly... The system as it stands, and I do mean not, not just the government, but I do mean all of it. The, again, the, the idea that people live in a place where food must be delivered via the for-profit system, well, 
that puts you at the mercy of it, doesn't it? The idea that if, if, if you know, there is a fuel problem, because that, that was another thing introduced here, too, which is going to have uh, longer-term economic impacts once again, because they're claiming, oh, by the way, uh, fuel distribution has been disrupted again. So that's why your price at your gas pump is climbing. Um, you know, and, and all that, that's all going to factor into this. And somebody's got to say at some point, look, the house of cards, okay, fine. You want to argue about the house of cards? Let's talk about the table it's on because that's not working. It's not level for starters, and it's certainly not stable. It appears to be, if you don't touch it or move it, it appears to be if you don't put any pressure on it. But once you do, you find out how wobbly and unreliable that table is. So no matter well, how you want to build What kind of system do you have that you can't put any pressure on, man? Well, I mean, seriously. You the, don't. You know, the old farming communities were really resilient. I'm just talking about mm -hmm. settler colonialism. I mean, some of the worst things we've had in this country, you know, like they were mm -hmm. resilient. You are, you know... I uh, I watched my uh, my grandfather and uncle uh, help build a barn and get a barn help you know people help them build their barn wasn't a big deal but people will come down the road and help you put this up and you have your your barn up right you know and they weren't big farmers or anything they had a couple of horses and some some crops of various sorts but it, it wasn't a big deal you know if uh, if we were in that kind of community and a storm came and destroyed your barn your silo whatever you've got, then you would go to your neighbors and we would come in and we would build another structure for you in a week or so. Yeah. You know, and you would be, you'd be working again and you'd be surviving. That's resiliency. And that resiliency doesn't come from anything but your community. Right. You know, in this country, we've really, we've absolutely destroyed community. I, I was watching this video uh, of this man, you know, screaming at a mall because he couldn't get in during the pandemic and I thought, you know, the the amount of narcissism, self-centeredness, and infantilism. You're talking in about this, the why are you closed country. guy, right? The why are you closed, uh, that guy? There were two or three of them. There's that okay. why are you closed, yeah, and there's a guy making fun of him beside him. Okay. And I didn't even know if that was satirical or not, the whole the whole thing. Right. But, uh, but yeah, that was one of them. There were two or three of those. Where, you know, it's a oh. it's a man in each one and he's screaming about, you know, he wants to go in and, and go shopping. That's the one that that particular one. Yeah, you're referencing that. But okay. uh, but, you know, the whole the the typical just focus on on men, for instance, because I'll, I'll just pick on men. Uh, but, you know, the typical man of that age of settler colonialism, which is grotesque in its structure, mm -hmm. I will give it that. But he knew how to farm. He knew how to hunt. He knew how to build a barn. He knew how to do some some basic blacksmithing to mm -hmm. repair his you know things on his farm. Not complex blacksmithing, which would require a blacksmith, but uh, he knew how to uh, examine the soil and the weeds growing there to figure out you know what plants he should plant there. Uh, well, we have agriculture extension offices for that. But now you know you have these these men that are addicted to games on their phone. They're crying because they can't go shopping. Uh, their their focus on their community is so limited and dark and essentially non-existent that you if you know their their idea of freedom is not to wearing a mask in a pandemic. 
And I'm not telling you, like, okay, that's, you know, you don't wear a mask, you do. But it's not even debatable with these people. Like, you just say, you know, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. Well, this guy has told them not wearing a mask is, is the thing to do. Trump is what I'm thinking. Now he says, you know, you've got to be vaccinated. You you know, there are these knee-jerk reactions that we have. They're childlike. And, I'm, again, I'm not saying there's no debate over them, but we're not having debates over them. These people are just crying about, you know, you lock down a business. Well, if you have a pandemic, you lock down a business. We should have cut people checks and made them stay home four to six weeks, and the, the epidemic, the pandemic, would have been over. But we can't do that. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a nation of children, of narcissistic, self-focused children with no sense of solidarity or community. And it's been, to me, my idea of it is that we've, it's been managed for us, that we have been brought to this situation because we can't have any sort of community strength. We can't have strong unions. We can't have strong uh, towns that can resist some of these problems. None of this. So you have these atomized people, and they just can't function. You have a, a you know, right now, you have a stress, like in this community, where you, you lose your apartment. You lose everything. Yeah. What do you do? You don't have any real institutions. You know, I was looking at the phone banks that our, our representatives are bringing out and uh, trying to just check on members of the community. Like just a basic, like, are you okay? Who's the guy who lives down there? He, he's, no one's seen him. Things like this. You know, and we don't have any of those structures available. Right. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling now, man. But it's, it, it's, it strikes me as pathological that we have a country, a world, uh, uh, mainly focus on the U.S., but a country in which we don't seem to be able to do some of the most basic things a people should do. You know, those old farmers, if you told them, I'm going to pour uh, a chemical into your stream that's going to poison it for 10,000 years, well, no, you're not, because we we need that stream to irrigate our crops. And mm-hmm. I, uh, that's a, I don't see how that's controversial. But here in the U.S., you can do that. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, here in the U.S., if you told people, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, uh, that the food is toxic, but you're free to choose toxic food, and you're free to balloon, and you're free to collapse of heart disease or, or, or uh, uh, tumors. Well, that's a form of beauty, isn't it? I mean, you, you that's actually what the founding fathers were fighting for, for you to blow up like a tick and collapse by your own choice. Mm. It's absolutely stupid. You know, uh, the food is so much better in Europe because they've got better regulations because they, they demand it. <sighs> I, I'm well, just see, stunned, man. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. I'll, no, it's I'll okay. stop because I don't feel very coherent about this. No, it's okay because, one, th- th- this leaves it open for me to ask you a question, right? <laughs> okay. And sure. <clears throat> I, I want to uh, frame the question first with, you know, over the years, I've had several discussions with well-meaning individuals, seemingly intellectually competent individuals, who have often cited this destruction of the character of that man that was available who knew how to do certain things, who is no longer encouraged to know those things. And again, he was kind of born of a grotesque system. Some people agree. Grotesque in the sense of settler colonialism. It doesn't have to be that system. I'm just thinking, no, but th- as an American, but I in, know other Americans in that history. You know, But Go in ahead. reality, that's where they came from. 
Okay. They came from a situation where I don't think it's right that, you know, six-year-olds need to be working in tobacco fields, okay? I, of course. I, I don't think it's right, but that's where some of those men came from, okay, who knew how to put up a proper joint in a house so it wouldn't fall down. They came from circumstances like that. So the different arguments come in here where you've got people who say, well, they, they've kind of stolen our masculinity from us. They have programmed this out. You know, uh, everything is toxic masculinity, whether it's actually toxic or it isn't. So they have intentionally feminized men. And there are various aspects to that. And, there, and that's mainly a right-wing argument, I know. But I got to tell you, I find some sanity in it when you take a look at what are we left with now and why is it so dysfunctional. On the other hand, there are others that say, look, our humanity in general has been stripped from us because we're so, you said, atomized. I think of it as compartmentalized to the point where your compartment now only holds one individual. You've literally become those action figures, the singular character on the back of a piece of cardboard, okay? And that's all you are. And that's what's been intentionally done. And there, there is such a thing as psychosocial programming. And I think it has been encouraged. Okay, we can agree with parts of the argument all the way across the spectrum and talk about how we've gotten to this point now where people are so dysfunctional that regardless of the pressure put on that table I was talking about before, everything tips because nothing is built strong, including the individuals. Let's just say we well, can agree on that for a second, but here's the question. Go ahead. Where do we go from here now? Because I got to tell you, it's very hard as, as a father, as somebody who does care about the community in which he lives, it's very hard to find a way to engage in some ways and even begin to encourage something other than what's happening. So my open question to you is, what would be the solution to what it is we're confronted with? Which is, again, remember... Uh, you know, as I say, you and I, it's, it's almost like you're my older brother, right? Generationally. Thing is, they right. said about us <laughs> that we were completely disengaged and useless because we didn't have that sense of uh, most of the time they would attach it to nationalism or some other sort of uh, a, a tribalism that we well, needed I to participate to heart, in. Man. I mean, we're yeah. we're like four years difference in us, I think, and uh, something like that. We're yeah, we're in that Gen X group, and I took that uh, legitimate and illegitimate criticism to heart. You know, there's a criticism you can have that the young people are a mess, which has been made probably since prehistoric times. Every time uh, there was young just, people, that happened, I think. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah. So we'll we'll skip that. But then there is. This other thing, which I thought was apropos, and I, I and it affected me. And let me just before I say anything about that, uh, put right and left connotations aside, because I think what you said before has a lot of truth, and yet it's mixed in with a lot of things that actually I want to dismiss or disentangle. Okay. But if, when you, so put, I don't care whether it's right wing or left wing. I don't know what masculinity is. I don't know what femininity is. I mean, I know what a woman is. I know certain things I find attractive, or certain things a woman might feel traditionally uh, make her a woman, or traditionally make a, a person a man. Uh, I don't know that you know a lot of people 
uh, when I left Kentucky many years ago, uh, the first considered me very masculine. And uh, as I've, I've talked with people, uh, my daughter in particular, we were talking about this yesterday. Um, I never considered myself very masculine. And mm-hmm. I, the reason is I paint. I read all the time. And I had to fight a lot as a young man because in a rural setting, um, that's not masculine. Painting. Paintings immediately. I used to make a joke with buddies that were gay and activists. Uh, I said, you know, I identify with you because I'm two steps away. I'm sissy because I've got a book of philosophy in my hand. I've got a paintbrush. And, uh, you know, I used to go outside to draw as a kid. And I'd always put something behind me and I get a two by four or a big stick or a small bat because inevitably a couple of guys would come along to harass me because I'm doing a completely feminine thing, which is drawing. Now, is it feminine? Am I feminine? You know, um, at a sporting event one time, uh, to make a long story short, some guys were harassing me because uh, I was talking about philosophy with this guy who uh, was on an opposing team. I didn't care. I play sports. I love playing sports. I don't care to watch them. But at the same time, you know, I don't care to engage in, like, getting myself riled up. I had awards and uh, many awards for my my play and my wrestling. And I, I was not uh, – I, I was a superior athlete, but I didn't need to do the whole growling, screaming at guys, trash talking. And uh, at one event, I found some old pom-poms that um, – had a it's like the pom-pom had disintegrated and you have these things that look like flowers and I, I attached them to my helmet and i came to the guys who were calling me you know basically sissy in words i won't repeat on your show right and uh, i did a little dance for them and then when play resumed i smashed them you know just to show them i just like this was me being silly but this what does it have to do with anything with in terms of masculinity or femininity for that context I was definitely not masculine, the context of rural Kentucky at that time in the 80s. Uh, In New York City at this time, (laughs) hanging around a lot of people who are very aware of these micro divisions of human sexuality, I'm considered far to one side of the spectrum. So I don't know what masculinity and femininity are, and I'll put that to the side. In terms of capabilities and what uh, a person... But if you want to specifically say a man, I'm fine with that. What a man could do at one time, I actually worried about that. As a as a middle schooler, uh, I was surrounded by men who did trade work, and um, I began to read quite a bit. And I thought, you know, um, if you look at the books, the science books, the school books of 1895 or 1900 in the United States, our capabilities – Um, are nothing compared to an eighth grader then. An eighth grader, uh, it was almost college-level mathematics they were doing. They knew their geography. So I began to study. And I also began to really learn to do a multiplicity of things, whether it was, uh, you know, really understanding farming, which I still don't. I I did it some, and I've grown crops on my own. Understanding, uh, you know, mechanical work, which I know in certain certain ways. I know nothing about electronics, which is a sore spot. Um, but beginning to, you know, understand how to cast something, understand how to how to forge something. Mm-hmm. And people think who know me think, uh, you know, I have this bevy of skills, which I guess I do. 
but it was a very conscious decision because as a little kid, I sat around uh, whenever I could in front of the television set with a drawing pad, a stack of comic books, and uh, that was my life. And I, I began to fear that I was becoming a slug and I would grow up to be a slug of a man, uh, you know, a mollusk, and have no ability to survive. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, at this age, I still consider myself, um, compared to this, you know, fantastical ideal of a man from the 19th century who could do all these things, deficient. But I'm actually not. I'm, you know, in fact, I'm, I've got a, a book here on crops, on open pollinated seeds to, um, to grow on the roof here. And in, uh, in this building, since I have this much access to it. So, yeah, I I don't know about masculinity and femininity. I do understand capability and self-reliance. And uh, and that self-reliance, I have to put that in quotes, too, because it's a uh, it's not a, it's not the mountain man fantasy that I'm after, but the contribute to your community thing that we have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I have some basic medical training. And uh, if someone were hurt, I know how to put their arm in a sling. I know how to uh, to get them into a, a reclining pose without further doing damage to them. I know CPR. I, you know, I can do some of these things. And uh, maybe you, someone else, knows how to create a medicine or other useful things. And so self-reliance is that quality of, of being capable of substantially contributing to your community right and those people could so yeah i don't know about the masculinity femininity thing but the argument you're making feels very valid in that uh we've been deprived of these abilities to function you know the the toxic masculinity that's that's a whole other consideration too because i think there are ways that we as men are taught to act that are sickening and we need to reevaluate them. And then there are ways that, uh, you know, people joke and talk that should be uh, dismissed. I'll give you an example. I, uh, I was banned from a list <laughs> the past week uh, with the Socialist Rifle Association. I'm on a loop, a little signal loop with them. Mm-hmm. And I haven't asked them any questions yet. And I asked them about storage of a gun. And I said, you know, this gun is... Uh, it was kept upstate. I have the paperwork on it, and uh, I have the numbers, and I need to retrieve it. Where do you keep them? And uh, before anyone asked, I said, you know, it was kept with a girlfriend upstate, and, uh, you know, we're no longer together. Should I just get another girlfriend upstate? Now, that's me being funny, just introducing myself. If I, okay. if you were working on a car, I would come and say, hey, I need to work on this car. You know, I've done this where people say, you know, every time I press this button or I put my, my foot on the accelerator cable, uh, pedal, this happens. And you say, well, don't do that. Well, you're being silly, but it's a way of socially lubricating the situation. Right. So I said, oh, maybe I should just get another girl, girlfriend. And immediately this person said, I wake up to this and I see you know, this sickening response by this person coming on this list and devaluing women and i i watched it as uh my very minor joke was blown sky high and i thought uh finally i said you know could you add to this my crimes because they were now i'm 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 a monster and one only Uh. one person said exactly what did he do other than say maybe i should get an upstate girlfriend um, and which is true, 
And other people said the way he put it was horrible. And I understand that he's harmed a lot of people in what he said, but it is a valid question. I just kept watching. I put a couple of times, I put, wow, wow. <laughs> but wow. I said, could we add homophobia, transphobia, class reductionism? And somebody, uh, at least with a, a, a woman's name, they may have been a bot for all I know, said, um, you've just clawed apart all of my oppression. I got ready to say fuck you, and but they had banned me, and it was a bunch of people saying ban him, ban him, ban him, ban him, ban him, and then I, I thought, well, here we go, fuck you, and um, they, oh, sorry, I forgot your show, man. Um, it's okay, my, my bad. But uh, we're not, thought, we're know, not going is, to the FM so, with this one. It's okay. Okay, okay, but but you know, like this is ridiculous. So is, you know, but if but by the same token, if you look at a Cuomo, that's toxic masculinity. That's a guy thinking he has enough privilege that he can grab people, he can harass people, he can use his power. And uh, I've been in around women that have tried that, and one that, that did, but mostly it's men. And uh, that's, very, that's toxic behavior. You can call it something else. But these are complicated things. Uh, the main thing is we as people don't have a, an, a, a recognition of community and, as well as our own strength enough to survive things well we're not even a society at this point and here's the thing with the uh the, the, okay i'm gonna tell you what bothers me about the story you just told me is that by turning around and getting so offended i'm actually nervous about them having a gun that they're that easily yeah, know, offended man. that that's uh, you know this is terrible you have harmed harm harm Really? Can we define harm? Can somebody... Yeah. Uh, defining harm is what? Something you don't like? My God, how do you survive in the world? You know, and, and really, uh, now, now, I mean, I'm not somebody who likes to question whether somebody should be armed or not, but I feel a need to wonder, you know, if you can't handle, should I get another upstate girlfriend? <laughs> uh... Really? I'm not. I, I don't feel comfortable being around you with a gun in your hand. I, I don't, because, you know, what? what a... I, I understand. I, and look, man, here's, here's the thing that's happened. I thought a lot about this because it really angered me at first. Then I let it go. But um, I've been in these situations several times. Well, no, numerous times, especially here in New York. And uh, I think what has happened is, you know, the language of oppression of the left. Mm. Traditional language of uh, people working too many hours, people not having any safety regulations, people not being paid enough, people being discriminated because of their race, or people being discriminated because of their sex, and fighting back against the power. Right. That's the traditional home of the left. Right. But what you have now is uh, people who call themselves on the left, who are from an educated class, who are urban who, whether they are doing well financially or whether they are privileged or not, they are privileged relative to uh, people that aren't in their place. You know, and, they, and so they use the language of oppression, 
but they're not oppressed for the most part. It's a relative. I mean, if you're if you're a woman, you should you know, especially in this country now, but definitely in Poland or Saudi Arabia, you you there's a target on you. If you're a black man in the United States or uh, half the the world, there's a target, you know, a hairline on you, crosshairs. So yes, you are oppressed technically. Yeah. But you know, I went to a meeting. Um, this is to, to me a very classic example of this. I went to a meeting. A year it was pre-pandemic, so at least a year and a half ago, of some anarchists. Big okay. meeting, actually, here in the city. And um, one of the things that was discussed was how weak Americans are because we don't have the threat of a draft. We haven't dealt with that. And the the young man who was – well, he wasn't – he was in his 30s. Uh, he, uh, he was talking about uh, how, you know, Americans don't get that, but he's Iranian. And he said, you know, our society drafts you. We have, you know, it's a much more militaristic society in this sense. I listened to him, and I, I don't mean to be bigoted. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not being bigoted, but I evaluate people. I look at how they're dressed, how they're speaking. This is an educated man. He's intelligent, well-dressed. And as he's describing his, his the context from which he comes, he's middle to upper middle class Iranian. And uh, I, I listened to him. A couple other people started talking about this. Oh, that they were talking about a protest dealing with militarization and war, and it was all uh, white people. And I don't even believe in the category of white except political. So, But that's the term he was using. And I listened to this, and um, I said, I, I, I disagree. I said, you know, I joined the military, and I was drafted. I was not drafted by conscript, conscription I was drafted by economic necessity uh-huh. and I said if you go to many rural or small town areas in the country you find people desperate for work that economic desperation leads them to the military exactly what happened to me well you'll find that and, in uh, urban areas as well where there, there is effectively no there, 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 there's no opportunity there you know, where where it's just like, look, the, the these guys go and they target people in, you know, areas like Detroit and in, in certain poor cities that are, you know, satellites yes. of major cities for sure, where <clears throat> the jobs have left. You know, you're, you're, you're I'm just mission. picking this one. You're totally right, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm just picking this one to, and, and I'm, you know, somewhat illegitimately stripping down a few details just to make this point. Okay, but I don't sorry. think it actually, you know, uh, works against the legitimacy of the whole situation. Okay. And that is the guy's making this point. He's educated. He comes from an upper middle class background, as he's described. And he's pulled this textbook thing out. Here are these Americans, uh, you know, white Americans. And they are—they're uh, totally incompre- totally uh, ignorant of an actual situation in which they're drafted and they're dealing with these kind of pressures. Mm. So they're—they're they're outsiders essentially to this this you know militarization and this push for war. And uh, that's that looks very good in a textbook written mm. by a well-meaning kindergarten teacher. But the actual point is, you are drafted if you're a poor guy in Tennessee. And you don't have any prospects, and someone comes to your high school as these monsters do, and they try and recruit you to go and do, you know, the the hitman work for one of these major corporations that we call the, the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are drafted. That was, you know, I got desperate, and um, 
through a, a, a few confrontations with my bleak prospects, I, I got a phone call after I was lying on my bed getting ready to go to work in high school, and I got a phone call. I didn't care if it was Navy, Marines, Army. I just said, where are you? And he said, you want out of this town? You want to go to college? I said, yeah, where are you, man? And he told me, I said, I'm coming. I, didn't, I, I was so almost drunk with despair. That's, that is a conscription. It's not the outright one that comes in the mail or, in, I guess, now email or wherever and uh, that kind of thing. But it is a, it is a draft. And the thing is that if you, are, if, you, uh, if you go by the textbooks, if you understand this language that's taught in schools, the traditional language of oppression, which is a very valid language mm-hmm. and should be spoken more, I think, not less. But if you put it into the mouth of someone who is, has some economic entitlement, who has the entitlement of education, which I do. I, I went to school. You know, I got it paid for. And initially paid for the first part of it myself. But I also was mainly autodidactic and snuck into a lot of places and things. But, I, you know, I'm not pushing people aside and saying school is bad itself. But if you've been to school, especially if you come from uh, an economically uh, relatively privileged background and you're a woman or you're a person of color, your, your use of the language of oppression should be curtailed in your head by understanding if you're talking to a poor white guy class has to come into there and and change that context has to be understood hmm. when you have you know there was a young lady at this meeting talking about um what was it she was doing she wanted to have a general strike she mm-hmm. said the country needs one well I, hell yeah of course and she said uh, she was going to contact people some leaders of main major unions to discuss this with them and, you know, and I kept myself from laughing. I said, well, you know, Sarah Nelson of the Flight Attendants Union mm-hmm. has proposed that. That was, uh, you know, what she said we should do to shut down Trump's, uh, you know, deportation and uh, all the rest of the, uh, Trump's policies. We'll say that. Right, right. And uh, it's a heck of a move for somebody to make. But she took, she said, well, I'll call her. I thought, you know, another well-dressed person, given your your language and your age, you come from an educated family, and I come from smart people. They're, they're uneducated. So I'm not, again, putting that down. I'm just giving this a context. And you are, you have this bright idea that you and your uh, amazing genius, you're going to call up or email this woman and propose to her that she proposed the thing she proposed. It's foolishness. you know. So there has to be some understanding. Like you said, I'm not harming anyone. By a joke. It was a mildly funny joke. It wasn't right. knocked down, <laughs> knee slapping funny. But if anything, uh, especially if you hear me say it, it's uh, it's it's not even a sexist joke. It's nothing. It's right. just a way of going, hey, sorry, take your time. I got a little question here. Thank you. That's all it was. Well, if and anything, I, you you're know, debasing the idea of a relationship, not necessarily a woman anyway. Uh, you know, like even if I try and look at this as aggressive, it's difficult to do. But, you know, <clears throat> let me let me just give you a different idea here that I think, again, this is what's missed in the attempts at debate when it comes to stuff like this. Right. And it's it told, it'll, it'll seem like it's out of left field, but I bet you can make the connection. And uh, we we won't go too much further. I was going to do a reading with you tonight, but we went yeah, into this no, direction. We've eaten the hour, man. We've eaten the hour almost. <laughs> so, it, look, 
let let's let's just conclude with I'll throw this on the table and let you work with it, right? I have this problem all the time where I try and explain to you know I- individuals and and this is going to come up very soon again on my show because I'm going to have a little bit of a philosophical debate with somebody that uh, is friendly to the show but I I I I shudder to think of the fact that they make such broad statements uh, about how people should comport themselves without ever taking into account that the people that that need to do this the most are the individuals that they do not fully reckon with their circumstance. Now, what do I mean by this? Okay, all the time we talk about the toxic food, right? And we talk about how it's problematic. And... When I bring this up to some very well-meaning individuals who are more or less on that left side of the spectrum, um, a lot of them will make some very flippant and, quite frankly, stupid statements. And I, I don't know what to do with it. It's just like, well, if you buy the organic food, then the organic food will come down in price and you'll be able to afford it. Sure. And I, I try and explain, look, Perhaps you're not aware of the mathematics involved here, but if you're trying to feed a family and Mm -hmm. you try to do what you're suggesting I do, um, I can't do it. It's not economically feasible. Uh, now, Now, I try, believe me, I try to add decent food into my own family situation, and I use myself as an example, but... I know there's uh, people in worse positions than me. And I know there's people in better positions than me that'll still give you the same answer. Um, You know, you and I talked about something just before we went to air where I said, well, you know, eh, this is going to cost me so many hundreds of dollars. I'm I'm trying to be, uh, you know, lighthearted about that statement, but it's a hard thing. Um, But the daily survival of my family cannot be linked to this idea that I'm only going to buy this high-priced organic food. I can't. It's not possible. Okay, even adjusting everybody's diet and trying to, like, really count the uh, the amount of intake, and it's not possible. You're, you're, you're throwing me a, a very, well, simple solution. Stop buying the bad stuff. I right. get it, and you're right. Problem is, how... Because I you realize can't... how close that statement is to uh, not only let them eat cake, but why don't they why don't they call the butler? Well, but that's my point: is that these people that are making those statements are not reckoning with the entirety. You know, look, it, that'll work. <laughs> I hate to put it this way, but you know, and, and again, I don't believe in the white people classification either. But there is such a thing as white people problems. And and I got to tell you, I, I often look at certain things where people just go, well, just do this. And I go, man, it must be nice where your head lives because that's not reality for me. And that's, you know, and, and I got to be honest, it's usually white people doing this. <laughs> people that would identify themselves as white people. Um, and, and it's amazing. Yeah, just call the butler. Well, that's all right. Just buy another one. Um no, that's not the reality here. You don't understand what I'm saying. I'm trying to tell you there's an economic component here that is a limitation. I'm trying to tell you that there is a class limitation to some of the things, like the strike, right? 
the the the, the strike. Some people are going to go, yeah, but if we succeed in even doing that, you know, in the meantime, who's going to take care of X, Y, Z? Now, see, this is a very important thing, man, because what's missing from this picture is that we, as people, as men, as women, as people of color, as Serbians, as Germans, as Irish, all the rest, uh, as gay and straight and trans and cis, we used to have an understanding of community in, to such an extent that if you told me we're going to go on strike on my business, I would say, well, let's go and talk to the guys at the Union Hall, the Temple, whatever form of community organizing institution we had, and we would set up something so that your family is taken care of. This is how people did it with mutual aid societies in the 19th century. They were right. doing it in the 20th century. This was a big deal, and you see it early in the 20th with the IWW, when you have, among others, but I'm, I know this very uh, detailed history, when people would say, we're going on strike, we're textile workers in Patterson, New Jersey, we're going to have to do something with our children if it lasts more than two months. Because mm -hmm. we stocked up some money, the community has stocked up some money for us, but there are relatives, and there are people in the union, there are other anarchists, there are other socialists, there are other union people, whomever freedom fighters these people will take your children for a while so that that burden is lifted and at some point they will come in with money and help you eat if you're going to have that problem which you, you would eventually of course right but we had those structures so this question wasn't asked my dad and my, my grandfather people like this when they went on strike the union had a strike fund put aside you know uh, i i was part of this with the teamsters but the strike fund was paltry and there was a lot of corruption with the Teamsters. Back with the steel, fit, steel workers and pipe fitters with my, my grandfather and father, there was uh, an ample strike fund relative to the paltry one we had. It still wasn't great, but it was enough to float you, and you could make it. So right. that's, that's a little thing. Going back to the 1920s and before, 1930s even, we had a whole structure of community that understood how to take care of this. So this question didn't arise. Basically, you're, you're asking me, this is not a, a dig at you, but you're almost asking me how you're going to run with no legs. Right. And it, it looks silly, because how, how would you run a race with no legs? But we used to have legs. We used to be able to do these things and take care of each other. This made sense. You know, if you look at the Blair Mountain War, the war against the, the mine owners, you know, where from which we get the term redneck, it's West Virginia wars. Those in those cases, when the uh, when people were attacked in their communities by gun thugs hired by the, the owners of these mines, they knew how to fight against those. You know, you knew how to get guys together and fight in a, a guerrilla warfare. Second biggest conflict on this uh, on American soil. Mm -hmm. We we've lost all of this, so you know you you don't have any ability. This is whatever. Uh, this is long. I, I could say much more on this. I know we're almost out of time. Actually, we're we're over. But but that's the, that was the initial point I was making. Yeah. This kind of strength, if we call it masculinity or femininity or whatever, we, I don't care what we call it. But this kind of resiliency that we as a people have or had and need to survive you know we don't have it anymore we used to have food like you would have some sort of structure for community food right. even in your own home you'd have some food stocked away i i bought some books um, before the economic crash in 2008 
I had some books on this that I had kept for quite a while and uh, had in my basement a storage of water, a storage of different foods, uh, not to the crazy extent of someone thinking there's going to be a nuclear uh, Armageddon, but to the extent that someone would, would think, I'm going to go for a week without water and without food mm-hmm. and, uh, and be able to handle that with two small children. Because we had, we had uh, the windstorm of 2008, I think it was, and we had, we had a couple of natural disasters there in Louisville around that time, and I was ready to go. So, I mean, this is this is a real thing, and we used to have that resilience. Yeah, but that's the thing is, h- how do you get back to that? And, you know, there, there are some people that offer the, the prepper answer, right? You know, where, <clears throat> well, you know, stock up for yourself and all that. But quite frankly, when you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are not, I mean, all that makes you is a target if anybody knows you got it. And so, we know we know how to do this, man. I just finished writing a comic book story for this new comic that's coming out, right. and uh, I'm going to be drawing it. And it's um, my piece on it is hearkening back to this idea of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. When when the shit hits the fan, the apocalypse, uh, we happens, and we wonder what we would do. We can actually look to uh, apocalypti, <laughs> call them, but little apocalypses that have happened over and over because they have taken place. And you see what happens. What happens is people need medicine and they need food. Right. They start with those two things. So people that know those are, are at the forefront. When uh, when guys are flexing, you know, posing with guns and talking about all this prepper junk, uh, they should look at these situations in which there has been a real need, uh, a real apocalypse. And the women come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. The women tend to be the caregivers. And care is what you need right then. You have emotional upset. And you have medical needs. So people are hungry, people are injured, people are frightened. So you have those those three things come to the forefront. Right. And you have this uh, ability to uh, begin organizing the community and, and taking care of the more peripheral needs as they develop. You know, these things have happened. And you can look at actual apocalypses. The, the fantasies that people have about a bunker and putting their guns there and uh, <laughs> this this American uh, jack-off dream is just never going to work. It, it hasn't worked. It's silly. And, uh, you know, it's like I, uh, I was working a construction job years ago, and there was a, a guy who was actually, actually a Klansman. And uh, he, in coded language, would, would talk about, you know, a race war, and his sons lived next to him on all this land, and uh, they had stocked up a bunch of weapons. Mm-hmm. And I I called him out because I knew you know what his codes were, and uh, and he was he was uh, absolutely stupid you know IQ of a paper towel so you could joke around with him and mock him without him even knowing it but I asked him one time I said you know uh, you're actually going to fight the government yeah he said I got land <laughs> and my sons are out there he said so I got backup I said okay I said uh so what how many weapons you got and he he laid out this you know itinerary this list of, of weapons mm-hmm. and i said so you got three guys how many weapons can you use at any time and he said you know i, I see where you're headed he said we can uh, we can actually do and he, he detailed the situation where they've got more the use of multiple weapons and all types of booby trap situations set up yeah and uh, of course we didn't have drones then this is 20 years ago but i said you know i can tell you what's going to happen and i said you and your three fat-butted sons 
you know, are going to be uh, down in your little mock trench with all types of camo gear on. And uh, you're going to hear the wind, feel the wind pick up just a little. And then an Apache helicopter is going to cut you to pieces with a 50 caliber right there. And you're done. And that's the end of the prepper fantasy. Like you said, people would prey on you. What, what happens when you sleep? So you got 10 people, I guess, and you have guard duty to, to shoot your neighbors because they want your cans of beef or your, your chili, you know. And this is, it's a silly situation. At some point, something will go wrong, and then people take from you, and then people take from them. It's, it's, it's a joke. Right. What happens is you have a community that recognizes the need of the community and the good of the community itself. And th- those people who meet those immediate needs of psychological, emotional repair, physical repair, medicine, and of food come to the forefront. And then other things start to happen. Right. You know, this is, this is what we should be focusing on. How to have these strong communities and how to be strong people. You know, we uh, we uh, rely on these billionaires and their their now newly formed institutions like Amazon to the point that I think some of us couldn't live without them. You know, a, a guy I knew his wife would order from Amazon daily, so he said we were con- like continually getting these packages, and she sends half of them back. So this total waste is happening. And, uh, you know, she's not even able, like, where is she getting her food? Where is she getting any tools? Where is she doing any repair? Right. I mean, all this stuff is just coming to her in the mail. Right. I should say, I don't really know all those details. But I know that she's, you know, she's addictively using this. Right. Well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to bring this to a bit of a close by asking you a question, which ties all of this together in my mind. Um, and and it, it's a harsh one, but it's kind of a yes or no question, but I don't know how you're going to take it. I'm thinking at this point in time, you know, is it going to take a serious calamity for people to recognize that this is exactly how this runs? You know, I have taken the time. I, I'm, I'm an adequate medical team member. <laughs> Okay, sure. like I, 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 I know I can serve in that capacity. Okay, in a community setting, I've done it. I do it now on occasion. Um, <clears throat> and I know that uh, with, with somebody with a couple of other skills, I can create a team that could adequately take care of a community, a small team. And, uh, and, and I'm good at running a team. Okay, so th- this I know I can do, but I do wonder to myself, you know, again, I'm not the, I mean, I'm adequate with a weapon and this and that and whatever. I'm an asset. I know I am. But uh, not because I'm a tough guy, <laughs> okay? But because I, I know I have certain pieces of skills that would be called upon in very troublesome times. Um, but here's the thing. I, I do wonder if it's going to take a massive calamity for people to rediscover the necessity of, uh, of, of being, well, you know, self-reliant. And I don't mean just, you know, army of one. I do mean having a community idea that allows a group of people to take care of one another. Is it going to take a massive calamity or you think they're going to learn over time that no matter what, you know, the childlike instinct to be told what to do uh, leads you to, I mean, eventually, 
all these things end up evaporating. I mean, is it going to take something big and bad that is, you know, more massive than we've seen in recent history to get people well, back on track again? What are your thoughts? Yes or Not no? to dodge your yes or no, but um, I think, you know, like with the IWW, they think that uh, showing solidarity to people is not only good, but it's a practice for a society in which that's how we live as a norm. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, if it's going to take one big event, it's going to be too late. That hopefully, and uh, this is a, a weird, dark hope, but I hope that what we have is a series of smaller events, for instance, right now, mm -hmm. it's Hurricane Earth, Tropical Storm Ida, um, you have these smaller events in which people begin to build networks in which people begin to take care of each other and begin to see the importance of that and begin to know like uh, you know this anecdotal uh, situation in which you know you don't know your neighbor's name find that name out look at who that is how would you have a phone tree or an email list or something where you could get a hold of your neighbors mm -hmm. know what they do know what their needs are all those type of uh, old school mutual aid or old new school mutual aid situations, if we could begin to build those, we could also begin to have political power with them. And we could begin to address the cascade of smaller apocalypses, apocalypti, mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully make real positive change. I think if we're if it's one grand event that we're waiting for, we will get it and we won't recover. So, yeah, I, I, I think it will take uh, events because I don't I think that we've gotten so comfortable. This is and I put myself in there, especially as a kid, you know, uh, sitting around reading comics, which I don't apologize for. And but drawing and watching TV and eating junk food. Right. You know, uh, I was on my way to larval stage and um, that's how we are. It's it's that that junk food was good. And the programming was trash, but the monster movies and things, they were awesome. And a nice, comfortable floor, you know, get a pillow, draw. Like, I, I, in that condition, you don't want to be disturbed. And the Internet, for all, for all we complain about it, and there are valid complaints, you can get incredible movies and incredible music. You can talk to people. You could sit and just talk to people all night. You're never lonely. You know, why is that in any way uncomfortable? It totally isn't. It's actually wonderful. So look look at this we're doing right now. You know, we have a very comfortable life. We have, most of us have air conditioning. Uh, most of us have heat. Most of us have at least some food. You know, even if there's a growing food scarcity or, uh, you know, starvation, hunger in this country, um, we have a comfortable life. And uh, unfortunately, the kind of mammals we are really like that. It's hard to get most people off of their butt to uh, to do something that's painful when they're comfortable. So uh, hopefully, you know, when you see your neighbor in such distress that that person has lost uh, her home or his, uh, his ability to survive or whatever's happening, or there's a, a death, and uh, you see that and you realize that that could be you. And when you take care of them, you learn their name and you learn a way that um, you could survive and they could survive. Hopefully doing that will change us in such a way that we don't need that one big event. But uh, right. your guess is as good as mine at this point, man. <laughs> you know, 
No, fair, look, fair enough. And I, I got to say all valid points and totally unintentional conversation tonight with Terry Tapp. But I assure you, next time we get together, I'll see if I can uh, convince him to do a reading. But uh, this was uh, a very necessary discussion tonight, the way I see it. TerryTapp.com, go there, check out his work. There will be uh, some stuff coming up in the near future, uh, some announcements about a few other projects, but I'll give you links to a bunch of stuff about Terry Tapp. And I also want to thank Joseph L. Flatley for his discussion with me in the first hour. LennyFlatley.net is his website. Uh, the author, the journalist, the interesting guy that he is. Meanwhile, I am Merely Ocelli. All of you are a DB Effect. Good night.